Welcome to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every week, I talk to inspiring social entrepreneurs and changemakers dedicated to building a better world. Here, they tell their stories, the highs and the lows, and share what they have learned to help other social entrepreneurs and changemakers on their journeys. So thank you very much, Kate, for joining me today on the Inspiring Social Entrepreneurs Podcast. Thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to join you. Great. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Very interesting research you've been doing. And can you maybe just by way of background, introduce a little bit uh, your, your background and, and what your current work focus and interest is, Kate? Sure. So right now I'm an assistant professor at the Institute for Innovation and Public Purpose. Um, and I came there after many years at Oxford. And I'm a chameleon of sorts. Um, I've worked across all different departments, moving from international relations to development studies, to politics, to the business school, um, to public administration. Um, but overall, mainly my work focuses or, or uses the lens of politics. I look at power um, in everything from how veterans pensions worked in East Timor after the conflict there to how multinationals sell confectionery to the poor um, in Kenya. So it's quite um, eclectic, but always with this sort of return or focus to questions of vulnerability, inclusion, distribution, and power. So power and political economy, who gets what and why. Um, and until recently, I'd only really done work outside of, of Europe. Very interesting. And uh, not something I've really talked about an awful lot in this podcast series. Uh, I, I guess you could more, you're more of a critical approach, critical thinking uh, tends to be a lot of um, uh, positivity around social innovation, social entrepreneurship. And, uh, and, and, and indeed, a, a lot of my dialogues have been about, you know, how particular uh, social entrepreneurs have gone about analyzing the problem and bringing resources together to try and solve it and so forth. But it is good to step back and look at these really important questions in terms of power dynamics, as you say, power generally and, and, and vulnerability uh, as, uh, as well. So thank you so much for joining me today. One of the areas, I guess, um, you, you, you've just done this, uh, some research on, which is a, a generally a, a very interesting area, I guess, is the whole area of relationships between corporations and non-profits, uh, I guess, be it NGOs, social, uh, social entrepreneurs as well. Um, I was wondering, why do they matter? Um, have you any sense of how prevalent they are, and, and, and can you maybe just talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I think, first of all, we see lots of action in this space, um, but it's also really diverse. So we can see um, partnerships between corporations and NGOs that are purely philanthropic. Um, we can see partnerships that are more transactional, um, ones that you know sort of move up more towards being really integrative or, or really transformative. This is a, a scale that, that some scholars use. Um, and I think the ones that I'm most interested in are those towards that transformative end of the scale, where we're really seeing um, a really strong alignment between the interests of the, the NGO and the business. And we're also seeing really strong complementarities. So um, the business is bringing something really important and so is the NGO and they're, they're putting those together and being greater than the sum of the parts. Um, and I think even though I take a, a critical eye to, to a lot of this world, um, I'm also really motivated by the idea that corporations are going to be important um, in addressing grand challenges and we need the private sector to be working on this. And these partnerships where they, they learn from and collaborate with um, or even create new entities with NGOs, I think are absolutely essential um, to being a response to grand challenges and, and enabling corporations to, to really um, be involved in that. And so the paper, the research that we did sort of starts with that, that view and says, we've got this sort of irony that Corporations need to be involved in these. We need these partnerships to, to help transform, help address these long-term challenges. But we also recognize that partnerships are, are difficult to sustain and they come with their own challenges. So how do you get this long-term systemic change while also recognizing that the instrument that you are using is maybe a little bit unstable? 
Yeah, yeah, very interesting, very interesting. And uh, I mean, as you say, there are different kinds of uh, partnerships or relationships, I suppose. Um, but what are some of the motivations, do you think, that, uh, that the corporations have? And do you think that understanding that would help a nonprofit, you know, think about forming a relationship with, with a large corporation? Yeah, so I think corporations, again, come in with with lots of different motivations and you know when you start researching organizations or working with them you also see that these kind of partnerships are creating different kinds of value to for different parts of the organization so doing some i did work um with danone in in um indonesia and the project they were working on you know it gave really informa important information uh, so it was a charitable project made really important information for the marketing team it was also really important sort of for the ethical side of the business, for the philanthropic side of the business. Um, so, you know, it can produce different kinds of value for, you know, you can be collecting data at the same time that you're pursuing um, social goals. So it's hard to sort of always say that there's a single motivation um, for corporations, because usually it's quite sort of multiplex and, and depends on where you're sitting. Um, you know, implementation. Some people are going to be very concerned with implementation of a project. And so working with an NGO will be incredibly important for that. Um, but for, I think, again, to sort of zoom out, to be able to enter a space that a corporation isn't familiar with or isn't comfortable with, they often need the NGO partner. And when I say space, it can be um, an area of, of work or type of work. So, you know, doing poverty alleviation programs might be just the kind of work they're not used to doing or doing school feeding programs might be something they're just not used to doing. Um, or it may really be actually a physical space. Um, when I study um, companies that are selling um, to the poor or selling into places like slums or very rural areas or urban settlements, they really don't have any way of seeing or comprehending the space. You know, the Kabira, one of the largest slums in the world or informal settlements in the world, is shown as a, as a park on maps of, of Nairobi. So, you know, it's, it's very, it's obscure if you're coming from the outside. So having an NGO partner can help these companies navigate spaces where they want to be interacting with people, but where they're sort of normal interlocutors, their normal distribution channels, their normal ways of working just don't, don't function. Um, so NGOs are very, very important as these sort of bridging elements to connect, um, connect these different worlds, these different ways of working. Right. And do you know, uh, it, again, it may be a, a, a distinction, a, a different distinction between NGOs per se and social entrepreneurs. Uh, many, many social entrepreneurs are trying to generate some revenues, not some profits and so forth, while NGOs, that's not a, a driving issue. Do you get a sense of the degree of focus on one or the other? Yeah, I think that's an interesting point. The, the kind of the research we were looking at was primarily looking at businesses working with NGOs, so really um, purely nonprofits. But the interesting, um, what we were really focused on or interested in was when that marriage of those two produced a social enterprise. <laughs> so stood up an organization that had social goals, but was using the tools of the private sector to generate, um, generate most of its own funding rather than to have something like grant-based or philanthropic funding. Um, so, you know, these are sort of, I don't know if you want to look at it as a spectrum or as a triangle, but they're they're all a little bit different. Um, but yeah, social enterprises are are certainly really important in this space, and they really embody some of this hybridity that we're interested in of having both a profit motive or a private sector motive, um, along with these really strong social outcomes, social goals, um, social metrics that they're going for. Um, NGOs probably more purely have have one side whereas and corporates on the other. Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. Can you say a little bit about what's in it for the, for the NGO or the, the social enterprise? Um, I mean, and how well understood is that? Yeah, so, you know, the, we're in an interesting world in, in terms of sort of the sustainability of NGOs, their funding models, and there's been a lot of innovation or new thinking about that. And I think the idea of either having a, a social enterprise component that, that is, you know, brings in revenues or having a, a corporate partner is seen just sort of as a new funding model. And, and that's sort of just one basic sort of instrumental side of this. Um, yeah. 
I think the sort of more interesting part, which I think is also really important, is this view of corporations, particularly large multinationals, particularly companies that have large and complex supply chains or resource intensive as really important points of influence. Um, so if you can help a corporation change its labor practices, or if you can help a corporation change some of its resource use, that that's incredibly powerful. Um, and, you know, sort of you can really help to, to get scale in that way, um, and leverage in that way. So I think there's, there's an interest in those kind of partnerships in order to sort of influence practice across, you know, huge, huge, you know, supply chains, you know, across geographies. Um, so I think that's the real promise of, of some of this work. Yes, yes. Have you come across any research or insights into what makes for a good partnership and is any advice for uh, social entrepreneurs? Uh, I, I, I did research once upon a time in, in relationship in, a, in more technology, small technology companies and, and large uh, multinationals and so forth. And there were particular kinds of issues to do with, you know, the size, the scale, the time frames and things like that. I don't know whether you've come across or, or seen any, re or know if there's any research or, or insight into that. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I tend to look, you know, a lot of this comes up in terms of understanding the problems that arise. So maybe I, I can more express it in terms of the issues and then seeking to, you know, surf these and address these. And so, you know, and, and we experience this as, as academics working with industry partners. Um, you know, we, we, we experience this as academics even teaching that you've got different cultures, different incentive structures, different timeframes, you know, either the experience of, you know, what, what does done mean? <laughs> what does a report mean? Um, all of this works really differently um, across different types of organizations. Why are you doing this work? Different personal motivations, um, different metrics. What are you measuring? What matters? Um, what matters for your reputation? Um, what, are, what risks do you see? And so all of these things are complicated and you know, need, to be, need to be surfaced um, very early. And there's, you know, when you get all of these conflicts, there's, you, know, you can have different behaviors that arise, either that they get dealt with and aligned or that you get sort of you know things getting swept under the rug and so i think the the best practices is to be trying to find spaces where there's genuine collaboration and genuine alignment um, rather than trying to to fit things together that that aren't going to work so well um, and some of the cases that that we studied for the for the paper um, that I think we'll, we'll go on to, I think really found that kind of genuine complementarity where there's really strong knowledge in an area, ability to build up networks, and then the corporation being able to use resources, um, share spec, uh, specs, be able to you know, give technical insight, and you get this real sort of puzzle piecing together. Um, and I think that that's really important. So, you know, really wonderful alignment of skills and complementarity of, of skills there. Yes, yes. And do, you, do we know in general whether they, how successful they are? I know there's a lot of research, for example, on M&A and, you know, how successful uh, mergers are and, and that kind of thing. Has anybody looked at the, this question of if you start out looking to build a relationship, what are your chances of success? Yeah, I think it's a great question. I, I don't know if there's been really good sort of empirical work on this. Um, you know, this paper, we talk about ending um, relationship ending, relationship exit. And one of the things we say at the beginning is that there's a real survivorship bias um, in the research. There's also sort of a partnerism bias or a success bias. And this runs through a lot of management research. So you study the best cases, you study what, you know, what's done really well. Um, and so it takes attention away from what might be the bulk of the cases or not, um, where, where it's more challenging or, or where the partnerships don't don't sort of succeed in different ways. So I think it's a really good open <laughs> research question. And then also to this point of partnerships creating multiple types of value, you know, they may succeed in some in some areas, but not in others. You know, the a partnership with an NGO can form a really important legitimating function or reputational function for a corporation to act in a space, even if functionally it's, it's not doing that much. So, you know, they can succeed or fail on lots of different, um, 
uh, areas and for they may succeed for one partner or, or fail for the other. Yeah. In general, is this a kind of new area or, or an area still really being explored and mapped out? Yeah, absolutely. There's been interest in hybrid organizations for a while. Um, and I think social enterprises are really a wonderful example of that. And business nonprofit partnerships. There's been some work here, but I think it's an increasing area of interest, like I said, because of the interest in the funding models and the new ways of, of creating impact. And so I think there's this is growing interest. There's a lot of work to be done. Um, yeah, and I think it's sort of a, a growing area of activity as well. Yeah, so it's going back to the point you made earlier. Looking at it from a corporate perspective, does it matter to them whether it's a non-profit, for-profit, or a hybrid, or what have you, or other priorities in terms of you know size, uh, position in the community, relationships, credibility, professionalism, issues like that? Yeah, you know. It, it you know these all have different functions and you know it sort of go back to that original typology of you know is this a philanthropic partnership where you've got you know you want to be doing your carbon offsetting and so you're going to you're going to contribute to to a, a rewilding project in Scotland and you know that that can be seen as and maybe it's a long-term relationship and thus we call it a partnership i think you know that's a very different kind of purpose and your selection of your partner would be really quite different than if you're saying we're going to stand up a whole new program. You're going to be our eyes and ears on the ground. <laughs> and we're going to work together in a community where this company's never worked before, or we're going to be sourcing a new material that we've never sourced before. Um, if you think about some of these supply chain projects. And, and I think in those cases, they're really picking, picking on, on different criteria. Um, you know, a local NGO versus an international NGO, working with a social enterprise, all of these, these decisions, I think, really reflect the, the program aims or the partnership aims and the partnership type. Uh, very, very interesting. Why do endings matter? And what drew you to, to that question? Yeah, I, it's funny. Whenever I, I talk to students, I, I give a talk about writing, writing academic essays. And I say, okay, you've got a picture of your marker. Um, you know, she's had a glass of wine. It's 8.30 at night. You're the 50th paper she's reading. Um, you know, <laughs> what are you going to write that, that makes her pay attention? And I think there's something similar in, in academic work where there's a lot of attention on partnerships, why you should enter them, the benefits of partnerships, what it takes to start a partnership. But people really aren't, aren't talking about why they end, how they end, what happens at the other end. So it's sort of a bit of a swim against the current um, to start thinking about this. What, you know, what, pe what are people not talking about, but what's actually really important? <laughs> and, you know, so, so there's sort of this just, you know, contribution to the literature, just in sort of saying, this is something that we're, we're not really looking at. Um, I think the other piece is, you know, organizations really hate to, to end. <laughs> Um, this was, there's a wonderful um, scholar named Jessica Stern who studied terrorism and she said, you know, if we look at using organizational lens for terrorist organizations, um, they often would rather change their purpose than to say that they've achieved their goal. And this is sort of what's called the March of Dimes effect, where you shift your focus. And she says the core, the core purpose of organizations is to keep on going. So, so you know, looking at when they end, how they end, why they end is again sort of an interesting, interesting puzzle. And I think maybe the most important reason I should have put this first is, <laughs> you know, we can start to think about endings as the beginning of something new, um, if they're managed well. And so a partnership, if we see partnerships as being important for addressing grand challenges, for real big issues from climate change to poverty, um, but we realize that they're somewhat ephemeral because they're sort of these, these temporary coming together of two organizations, knowing how they end and what's left afterwards becomes really important to answering that question of how are we going to address these challenges. So if they can stand up a new organization, a new social enterprise that's self-sustaining, or if they can create new networks that um, carry on in different ways, or if they can change practices within each of the organization, these are all ways that they can be sort of impactful past that, that sort of inevitable end date. Yes, yes. And presumably the, the spin-outs or what you're looking at at the end there, 
probably the most successful in the sense they've they've, they've gone the whole way and they and they they can uh, you know go off on their own legs as it were. And uh, but again, working in uh, uh, these environments where there's a shortage of resources, there's all kinds of social problems, and and you know you're dealing with quite fragile uh, situations sometimes. The the collapse or the end. Of a, of a social venture has has quite a significant impact, presumably. Yeah, I think that was a really interesting thing that came up in this research, because a lot of research on relationship ending had happened in sort of B2B relationships. And so if, if they end, you know, even if it's an, an acrimonious ending, everyone gets up and keeps going, but there's really a third party <laughs> that's that that's involved or implicated in the relationship ending between a business and NGO, and that's the um, the communities in which they were working, or the recipients of, of assistance, or those who were having their products bought, or those who were being employed, and almost definitionally, these communities would be vulnerable. Um, and we did really interesting interviews with with the business nonprofit managers, and they were aware of this issue. This wasn't something they were they were ignoring, but it was sort of something that was on their mind when they were deciding what kind of project to to create. And so, if you're if you're designing a project responsibly and you know that you're going to end, are you sort of holding back in some ways? Are, you know, are there certain kind of projects that could be impactful that aren't going forward because their ending would have a negative repercussion on the community? So, you know, how do we work with those constraints or how do we design an ending, whether it's through a spin out or through a new type of partnership so that, that you can still do the kind of work that's long-term and impactful, but you're really managing that ending process um, rather than just being sort of scared of it and saying, okay, let's make sure that, you know, this can, you know, that if we stop this, it, it's not going to create, create too many issues. So the idea of this third party, this vulnerable, potentially vulnerable groups in there, I think is, is really important. Um, and sort of makes you pause more than when you're thinking about relationship ending between, you know, a law firm and uh, their clients or something like that. Yes, yes. Do you get a sense that the more attention has been paid to this? Because presumably for a very large organization, this is a very, very small part of what they're doing and, and maybe globally and so forth. But for, for an NGO um, or a social enterprise, this can be huge. It can be everything. The ending, uh, as, as you say, can have, you know, a pretty significant, significant impact. And I guess also, as you say, if if, if they're not... Sometimes they're not expecting it. Maybe they're thinking well, things are going okay, and you know, from their perspective, they're getting a lot out of it. But from you know, you can see how maybe if you're the you know the NGO, you can see the benefits in a way where uh, clearer maybe than for for you know a large corporate or so forth. So uh, it may be a bit of a surprise, or it may be something as you say that people are put at the back of their mind, or they're not. It's not been communicated about. I don't know whether you get any sense of of uh, on the ground how how that's been. Yeah, I think it's a really, again, a really nice point because you know the the MNC may may leave or may you know be operating in another part of the com community. You know, they may leave the rural areas and just be working out of the cities like normal again. But the NGO or the social enterprise is there. This is their home community, and so that comes with risks for them and challenges. Um, you know. I lived and worked in East Timor for a few years and worked with a really wonderful NGO that was just really smart about this stuff. And they were really um, pushing back against quick impact projects, which were very much in the vogue at the time. We're really pushing back against one year projects, eight month projects, um, just because they wanted to form more lasting, more integrated relationships. And they also wanted to provide some security to the communities they are working with, and also some security to their own um, staff members. So, you know, these, you know, NGO social enterprises, you know, trying to push back against these quick funding cycles because it creates a huge amount of volatility um, and, you know, doesn't let that kind of trust build, you know, between any of the, the people, uh, actors involved. Yes, yes. So your research, what was the question you, you went to to explore, Kate? Yeah, so we were looking at a, a few different um, questions. Some of them were just basically, how do, how do these, uh, these kind of partnerships end? You know, you know, what happens when they end? How do they end? Um, and then we were really interested in this idea of spin-outs. So, you know, this idea that 
well, rather than sort of just parting ways completely, the two partners stand up a new organization. Um, and so we looked at a couple cases where that was in process and some of the thinking about that and sort of the, the promise of this being a way of, a way of working. And we also used it to sort of challenge this idea of a transformative partnership. We said, well, actually, maybe the most transformative partnership is the partnership ending <laughs> and the, and the you know, starting something like a social enterprise. Um, so these were sort of some of the, the questions that, that we were working with. And we, we looked at, at two really interesting cases that are sort of still unfolding. Um, but one was Interface, which is a huge carpet um, tile manufacturer, almost any office building that you, you go in would, would have interface carpet tiles. And they wanted a new way of sourcing um, nylon that gets spun into thread and then used in their product. Um, and they did a partnership with the Zoological Society of London and started up a, a, an enterprise that collects fishing nets, processes them, um, with the partner with this the yarn spinning processor and then sells that um, to interface so they basically created a new um, supply chain of, of um, discarded nets and so now they can say that a certain percentage of the carpet tiles they're producing come from this this source which obviously has a huge benefit um, to the communities because it gets rid of waste and ghost nets which can really damage um, marine life and also provides another source of income. So it's a really interesting, again, sort of example of this complementarity and networks, um, you know, being stood up as its own social enterprise is really an interesting prospect for, for those involved as having sort of greater sustainability, um, greater autonomy, um, and releasing um, the different partners from their, their role sort of in the, in the more day-to-day -day governance of that. So it's really in this, this already on this path to really being quite independent um, from its founding partners. And then the other case that we looked at um, was between uh, Timberland, the uh, clothing and footwear um, group, and um, it's a smallholder Farmers Alliance in Haiti. And there they were working on basically reviving the cotton industry in Haiti, which has been sort of um, defunct for, for many, many years and um, Timberland making um, or, or working towards a commitment to buying a certain amount of cotton from this source, which would give some stability to, to um, a new farmers cooperative that would be stood up as a social enterprise. So really two really interesting ways of partners coming together um, and then creating a shift in the supply chain and then hopefully, you know, down the line creating really self-sustaining enterprises that are providing either you know, cotton, <laughs> cotton from Haiti, or um, uh, fishing nets and, and nylon from um, uh, communities, I think now in East Africa, um, and, and the Philippines. Right, right, very interesting. And do you think there are certain prerequisites for a spin out? Yeah, so I think what, you know, like any social enterprise, the spin-out needs to have a clear business plan. It needs to be able to really make a case for why it could stand on its own two feet without, you know, too much um, financial support um, from either of these the founding partners. And so I think both these cases really spoke to the idea of, you know, being slotted into the supply chain of a big buyer um, or, you know, potentially even the, the, the founding partner like Timberland acting as a matchmaker to other buyers and that kind of pre-commitment um, to buying a certain amount you know allows the the, the social enterprise to have some guarantees um, which which you know gives it abilities to borrow gives it all sorts of um, you know the strength to the strength to grow um, and so I think that's, you know, having this viable business model and then having this partnership that sort of says, we're going to hold your hand for a transition period of five years, where we're going to guarantee that we buy 20% of your crop, or we're going to guarantee that we buy 10% of the, the nets you come in, or we're going to buy, you know, 20, and then by the time we leave, we'll be only buying 10. But, you know, just that kind of um, long runway to get it stood up, I think is really important, sort of an incubation period. Um, so a partner that can make that kind of commitment, um, give that certainty to the enterprise, allow it to build the networks that it needs to have other buyers and sort of diversify. Um, so I think those were sort of the key ingredients in both of these 
these spin-outs, although you could imagine um, them, them working in another way as well. Very interesting. So do you see this as a, a potential, this kind of hybrid of, uh, is it a, a versatile? Is it, is, it, is it one that you see becoming more prevalent? I, th I do. I think it has a really nice possibility, Be you know, again, because of sort of the, the challenges of running a partnership, you sort of, you're, you're working <laughs> sort of halfway out of your, your comfort zone when you're, when you're working across organizations or working across, you know, whole sectors. And so releasing the company and releasing the NGO from that, that challenge and then setting up something new that can carry that forward, I think is just a really exciting prospect. And with more partnerships, I think you can imagine more of these long runways, um, you know, to, to get to get uh, the social enterprises stuff. So I think it's a really exciting and interesting um, way forward and one that, you know, if they really can become self-sustaining could be extremely impactful and sustainable over the long term. Yes. And, and, and when do you think you, you get a sense of that? Go back and have a look in a few years. Mm -hmm. when, as you say, when, when do you say uh, stop or when do you, you know, two years, five years, I guess uh, sustainability is a tricky one, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, when, when did sort of the, the training wheels come off or when does that commitment um, end yeah. and they're, you know, really out to dealing with market forces? And it may be for some of these that it never <laughs> you know i i think that's that's also a possibility that that we could consider but the idea that timberland or interface would be supporting this this enterprise philanthropically which is much less sort of taxing organizationally than actually being a partner or only being involved in some governance issues and, and funding support that again is also you know a movement that makes this potentially more sustainable um, for for the organization, so it doesn't you know it doesn't always have to end with it completely out on its own, um, but it's just about making it less costly uh, over the longer term. Yeah, so and I have I come across uh, cases as well where for large corporations that the the kind of dynamism and the the energy the that the, the kind of seriously social entrepreneurial mm -hmm. mindset is something that's very valuable in an organization and that for, for, for you know, for, for a traditional, you know, uh, for-profit organization and that bringing in these kinds of, uh, bringing in people with these ideas and, you know, to some extent exposing your own staff and, you know, working in teams and so forth can have uh, quite significant cultural impact. Yeah, and you know, this, you could see this dovetailing with all the work on bottom-up innovation where, you know, looking at what's happening in places where there are more constraints, whether that's, you know, unreliable um, power supplies or, um, you know, lower, lower um, purchasing power, you know, what you see really interesting behaviors, whether that be mobile money or dual SIM, um, you know, this sort of really Christiansonian disruptive technology coming out of, um, you know, low income or constrained environments, so bottom up. So having these partners that are working in these areas, you can see is being very, very stimulating um, to a company that's not used to doing innovation in those areas or who really want to be aware of what's happening um, in, in places other than where they're headquartered. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Now, the other area I know you've been writing about recently as well is this is called the bottom of the pyramid, which is essentially it's it's business focused on the poorest, um, selling to the you know the, the poorest people in the world, uh, which I know was very in vogue. Are the ideas around the bottom of the pyramid and so forth? Um, also, an area potentially very problematic as well um, in terms of power differentials and and so forth. So, can you maybe just talk about uh, what the bottom of the pyramid is and your sense of uh, I mean of a big question, but you know how important a, a kind of idea this is at the moment for large companies yeah so I think you're absolutely right that sort of came into vogue sort of in the 90s early 2000s um, the really key author was CK Prahalad working out of um, the Ross School of Business um, and he his idea was really around doing well by doing good which would be very familiar to anyone working in the social enterprise space and he made the argument that there's been a huge amount of focus on selling to high income or high and middle income folks um, and that that's sort of saturated and the, the growth really isn't there anymore. Um, and that 
corporations have been really ignoring the bottom billion, sort of the, the bottom of the, the distribution, economic distribution, and that rather than, you know, that they can be innovating new products or changing how they market and package products, so they could be selling many, many tiny units for a small cost, and that that would be um, just as profitable, if not more so, than selling something in a much more competitive um, market above. And so, you know, that's that was sort of the core marketing idea. And the interesting thing that he so that's the doing the doing well, the doing good part is I think where more of the challenge comes in, particularly from um, scholars who come from a critical development studies perspective. And, and the initial idea of, of doing, doing good um, was really flipping sort of a sense of development on its head. We used to always think about, well, people come out of poverty um, because they start making a surplus. So they become more productive. So I get a hand tractor um, and then I produce 20% more rice in my, in my rice paddy. I'm able to sell that for a profit and then I use that money um, for better healthcare or for education or something. And that allows me to come out. So you make people more productive. Um, and the idea of doing good in some of these original notions of BOP development was really through consumption, uh, which is quite different. So you know, my purchasing choices. So instead of buying, um, you know, soap from the seller down the street, I'm buying an antibacterial soap from Unilever. And so I'm getting access to better products. I'm able to buy um, blue jeans. I'm able to buy um, better shampoos. And that, that having access to, to consumer products is being a benefit. And I think there's part of all of us who really like that idea. You know, like, I love having you know, uh, you know, a, a cell phone. And I love having access to ringtones and videos and makeup and candy bars and all this kind of stuff. And this sort of, we're all human. We like to celebrate that kind of stuff. So it was, there's a sense of, it acknowledged that very sort of human piece of, piece of everyone, even the very poor, that we like, we like this kind of stuff. We like consumer goods. Um, I think the challenge came from the side of saying, well, really, is that development? <laughs> and, and are you inducing um, people who have very little money um, to buy things that maybe aren't, aren't helping them in, in certain ways? Um, are they going to spend more, more of their disposable income on what we would call demerit goods, so cigarettes, alcohol, et cetera? So it sort of started off this big debate about you know, the role of consumption and development. And then that there, there was a shift also within the the sort of view of BOP development saying, okay, maybe we're focusing too much on consumption <laughs> and we should be looking at um, the poor, the very poor as partners in this. So it sort of became a 2.0 view and partners in the terms of the benefit going to people selling the goods. So a lot of informal route to market programs um, were put into place. And so it became about well, you're gonna sell a candy bar in your community. And the benefit isn't necessarily to the person buying the candy bar, but it's to you um, because you've gotten um, a source of income, uh, a type of employment. Um, and so that kind of has become where a lot of the action is now. Um, a lot of aspiration towards co-design of products, um, co-creation, but, but you're not seeing, I think, so much of that in practice. It's much more of sort of creating economic opportunities for the poor and that being sort of the impact case. Um, I think social enterprises in this space are a little bit different. You think about, um, you know, very famous examples like living goods where they're really purposely focusing on pro-social products, whether they be social, uh, um, solar lanterns or um, health products, women's health products. So that's, those are in a little bit of a different space. But a lot of my research is focused on fast-moving consumer good companies who are selling into these, into these markets. So it's a very long answer to a short question, but that's, that's a little bit of the context for BOP development. Yeah, very interesting and see the shifting emphasis and so forth. So what, what's your uh, recent research been about here? What, what have you been looking at? Yeah, so I've been working in this space for a long time and I've got well, a long time for a early career academic. Um, <laughs> uh, and I've got a few different pieces of work going. So there's work that I'm doing on new approaches to microfinance which has been really interesting and that's in cooperation with the Center for the Study of African Economies. Um, at Oxford. Um, 
And then I do a lot of qualitative work, um, including what are called photo elicitation interviews, where I talk to people who are doing, who are involved in some of these route to market programs as sellers. Um, and I have them take pictures. I say, what's the best thing about your work? What's the worst thing about your work? And then we put the picture on a screen and have them tell the story of, of the picture they took. And it's a really wonderful way to just get a sense of people's lives. Um, and, you know, lots of discussion of aspiration, um, discussion of pride, of flexibility in doing this kind of selling work. Um, you also get stories of being robbed, of being scared, of risk taking, um, of the physical burden of carrying a pack for people who are selling goods door to door. Um, so it's a really rich and complicated story that comes out of out of this work. And so um, I've been I've been looking at that um, and sort of thinking about the the pros and cons of that. Um, in particular, and when I say route to market programs, like I said, these are this last mile distribution programs. And you see companies, Danone, Unilever, Mars, Coke, HP, Chemex, lots of big MNCs involved in these. Um, and again, it's getting sort of framed a lot often, most, most commonly in this BOP development win-win discussion. So the critical piece of this research is sort of coming in and saying, is this exactly how it seems? You know, what are, what are other ways of looking at these relationships um, that might challenge some of this very positive um, discourse? Indeed. I know one of the pieces that you did recently, and it, I guess it's framed around gig work, uh, which uh, is, is pretty controversial here in the West. But uh, I guess this question, again, a little bit of working in vulnerable communities uh, and with poor people and so forth, the, the question of the, the kind of responsibilities that, that organizations, that corporations have and whether or not they are uh, taking them, you know, realizing and, and, and taking them seriously. Yeah, this is this has been a really interesting project um, because we often, again, like I, I've been saying, we, we look at these and say, okay, we've got this win-win proposition, you know, who's winning, who's winning more. And that's been a lot of the way this has been discussed. And you say, well, you know, the workers are getting income um, or the, the sellers are getting income. Um, they're getting an economic opportunity they wouldn't have otherwise. Um, yes, they're taking on risk, but they're taking it willingly. So it looks, it looks kind of like a classic market exchange where you have a marginal benefit and you're entering and therefore it's sort of all good. And, and that explanation has always sort of not quite sat that well with me. <laughs> and so this most recent work, I've been saying, what's another way of analyzing what's going on here that doesn't just say, well, you're getting some marginal benefit, so therefore win-win. Um, and so I've decided to focus on what I call the employment relationship, which is sort of a fancy way of just saying what the contract looks like, what the benefits are, what the costs are, how they're distributed. Um, and I really took inspiration from the growing critical literature on gig economy in the global north, um, where there's a lot of interest in what are corporations' responsibilities to gig workers. Um, you know, all the cases on Uber and rideshare coming out of California, um, you know, really are, are right at the forefront right now saying, are these people who have these contingent contracts, um, are they employees and should they be given protections that come with being an employee or are they independent contractors like your plumber? Um, and really there, it's a, not, you know, the, the corporation doesn't, you know, the, the Uber, um, the task grab, it doesn't really owe that much to the person because they carry their own tools and they're independent. And so I decided, I said, well, these route to market programs, the con contractually, they look very similar to this kind of gig work. You know, you're paid um, for what you, what you sell. Um, you don't have a long-term contract. You're not given um, sick leave, that kind of thing. So sort of in writing, they look very similar. So I decided to use some of the tools to, to take apart this relationship and look at things like, you know, who's depending on whom? <laughs> Where does control lie? These are some of the legal tests that are used to think about, um, you know, who holds responsibility or how to classify a worker. And really where I came to in this research is saying, 
you know, these people who are called micro entrepreneurs and celebrated um, as being, you know, entrepreneurial out on their own, they actually are very, very similar to an Uber driver or very, very similar um, to, to a gig worker, you know, who are also entrepreneurial in their own way. Um, but that kind of can obscure or cover up the idea that actually they're also workers <laughs> and they've got a, a long-term if, if episodic relationship with, with a corporation. And in some cases, a very large corporation like those ones um, that I listed earlier. And so the conclusion that I really came to was that these guys, if we look, look at this employment relationship, probably are due a lot more protections than again, they're currently given. Um, and some of that is obscured by, by the language we use to talk about them. And this again becomes complicated for corporations who are working with the very poor, because something like dependence, which, you know, if I was a gig worker here in Oxford, you know, I could, um, you know, go work for TaskRabbit, but if I didn't like that job, I could probably go work um, for Uber or I could go work for any other company. I have a lot of options. Um, but in, in cases of, of really extreme poverty, there aren't that many options. So there's a high level of dependence, um, sort of definitionally, when, when these corporations come in. And so you're almost always starting from a place where there's going to be, <laughs> where, where, you're, where the employment relationship is going to be creating more obligations on the firm than maybe it would be in a more competitive environment where people had more um, access to, to basic services or basic welfare. And it, it, it just raises this question of, you know, how a really well-intentioned actor, corporation who wants to work with poor communities, how do they deal with that? And, and I, I mean this critical work not to, <laughs> not to throw stones, but really to raise these questions. And you see there's a, a case, um, Bell, Bell Cheese, they did, a, they did work with vegetable sellers in Vietnam to help them have them sell laughing cow cheese. And they dealt with this by saying, only 20% of your income can come from selling this product. Um, because they didn't want to take on the responsibility of having lots of workers having the majority of their income coming through, these, through, through this channel. They didn't want to have that kind of dependence. But that seems like a, a difficult way to handle it. So you either, you know, you either put some very tight limits, like, like in that case, or you take on, or you take on some responsibility for, for putting in greater protections, greater care um, for these workers, having them be more like employees. Um, so it's a complicated, complicated space, any of this kind of gig work. Um, but I think it's particularly complicated um, when there's such different power differentials um, and, and such potential um, vulnerability. Sure, and I guess the first step is to actually look at this and say what's actually going on. What, what are the, the, you know, the power dynamics here, and uh, you know, what what are the relate, what is the economic relationship, and so forth. Uh, I know you're interested in in the tech for good area, mm -hmm. and uh, I just wonder if, if you talk a little bit about that. I mean, uh, clearly, uh, technology has amazing potential. We've also seen more recently, uh, a lot of critical uh, thinking about, about the power of platforms and uh, the way our technology has been regulated and also the data side of things, which is very controversial and, and understandably so. When it comes to tech for good, what are a few of the issues that interest you, Kate? Yeah, this was a really wonderful um, set of work. When I was at the Said Business School in Oxford, and I still teach there, but when I was there full time, I was approached by students who said, we feel like we're not getting enough of this. <laughs> we know, we know there's issues, we know there's, you know, sort of ethical problems that are coming up. And this was, this was maybe three years ago. Um, and so we really want to build a course around this. So I was sort of pulled into to pulling this together and had a wonderful time doing it. Um, and I think it was at a moment where this sort of maybe peak techno-optimism was going on. And because I've taught elements of this course for the last few years, and each successive group, you know, is much more hip to these, these issues. You know, I used to start by saying, you know, Mark, Mark Zuckerberg should, should not have dropped out of Harvard. 
we wouldn't have been in the same position that we are in now if he had learned some anthropology, if he had learned some political science, if he'd done some ethics. Um, and that used to be radical, you know, to, to, to question Facebook. And now it's like, oh yeah, everyone, everyone can sing that song. And so it's been really sort of wonderful to see, see students coming in more informed, more critical um, about some of these issues. But um, I structured the course around sort of four core questions. And first of them was the question of agency. So who is in control? Um, you know, how does information flow? Where does power lie? Um, which is a really interesting question um, to bring to, to various technologies. Um, we also talked this sort of a classic tech, tech ethics question, which I call ambivalence, which really speaks to dual use or misuse. Um, you can use a technology um, for good, but you can also misuse it or use it for, for ill, um, which raises a lot of interesting questions for design, um, governance, um, et cetera. Um, the other piece that I talked about was amplification, um, which I think still is probably the one that isn't given enough consideration. Um, although maybe we think about amplification in terms of the amplification of different voices now, uh, particularly in discussions of platforms. But there's really interesting critical work on the digital divide or on things like mobile technologies um, where someone who's got a really strong network um, and maybe already has some business ties, you give him a cell phone, he's going to really thrive and he's going to use that tool really effectively. Um, but if you give it to someone who doesn't have that kind of network um, or doesn't actually have access to the tool to begin with, um, he or she isn't going to be able to use it effectively. So you can have technology um, actually driving inequality rather than closing. We always sort of think about technology as, as reducing inequality, but it can often be a driver of inequality. So that becomes a really interesting question across a lot of different cases. And then the final point we would talk about is sort of appropriateness coming from um, discussions of appropriate design, which I think also really tied to things around accessibility um, and assistive technologies, which is a really interesting space. Um, so how do you make design um, universal, accessible? How can design help? Um, so a really interesting course and one that sort of I revisit now through my contributions to the innovation strategy curriculum at the business school. But it, you know, it really stimulating and something that, that comes up again and again. Again, bringing these questions of power, who's in charge, who gets what, what are the consequences um, to this question around um, tech for good, humanitarian tech, peace tech, um, all these, these sort of growing areas. Fascinating. It's fair to say you've got a pretty full agenda, Kate, <laughs> and, uh, and lots of teaching going on as well, I know. Um, but very, very interesting, really, and a, a whole way, way, lens and way of looking at things that I haven't uh, uh, been exposed to very much uh, doing this series. So uh, thank you so much for your time today and all your great work. And I wish you the very best with your ongoing research and, and teaching. Great. Thank you so much. It was a huge pleasure to take part. Um, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Inspiring Social Entrepreneur podcast. I hope you found this interview inspiring. Please make sure to visit www.inspiringsocialentrepreneurs.com and subscribe to make sure you don't miss any future podcasts.